Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Sherry Watt. Sherry is a professor in the Higher Education Student Affairs Program at the University of Iowa. Dr. Watt recently published an edited book entitled Designing Transformative Multicultural Initiatives, Theoretical Foundations, Practical Applications, and Facilitator Considerations. This book includes a rearticulation of the 2007 Privileged Identity Exploration Model, and this area of research explores various reactions people have to difficult dialogues related to social issues. Dr. Watt has been a facilitator prepared by the Center for Courage and Renewal since 2007, and Dr. Watt has over 20 years of experience in designing and leading educational experiences that involve strategies to engage participants in dialogue that is meaningful, passionate, and self-awakening. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll get started with a regular segment that we have called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask a, I'm going to ask a fairly silly question. I'm going to limit you to a 30-second response. How does that sound? Okay. I think I can do it. <laughs> okay, great. So is it more stressful to play a sport at a high level or watch your child compete athletically? Without a doubt, it is watching my child compete because I get so nervous and I have zero control. So <laughs> without a doubt, it's watching him compete. When when I competed myself, I had, you know, I could um, control it myself and whether I won or lost, it was on me, but not being able to do anything when you're watching your kid, that's really hard and exciting, but it's also hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I would imagine. I uh Fingers crossed. I really hope. I really hope my son uh, is involved in sports later in life. Uh, but you know, who knows? So he's one and a half. Yeah. He, he he likes to he likes to throw the soccer ball around the first floor of the house now. So. <laughs> uh, well, well, I, he he wasn't as much of an athlete as he is now, younger. So it is kind of an adjustment, I think, in the beginning when they first start playing. Yeah. Um, so, so well, yeah, uh, it is. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, to sort of continue on our conversation here, so you played, uh, so you played volleyball in college. Is it more satisfying to publish an article or seal a volleyball win with a kill? Oh, wow. Well, um, both are equally satisfying in some ways. I I really love teaching and writing, and um, I find myself when I'm in that zone that it's a special place and uh, my energy is high and volleyball also served served as um, that kind of thing for me in college and throughout um, throughout even my years after college playing. So um, there is something really, really satisfying about especially hitting a ball. I recall hitting one in college where I could or I was high enough, which I don't get that high anymore, but high enough to see the see the entire court and I could tell that I was gonna kill the ball and I started screaming before I even hit the ball. So <laughs> so there is some satisfaction, deep satisfaction of both, but I, I really do get a lot out of um, writing and it's not the necessarily the um, publications that speak to the scholars in the field, but the ones that really give me gratification are the ones that speak to the public and that there is some mm. um, reciprocation in that because people actually think of ways that they can use the work and think of ways that it brings them closer to who they want to be in the world, and there's nothing sweeter than that. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you touched touched on that nicely. I, I mean, I think there's 
uh, they could not be uh, more different kinds of satisfaction. One was very intellectual and very meaningful. And uh, as someone who's also played volleyball in a, in a, in a more informal way, uh, there is something very visceral and momentary about that kill, though. Oh, it's, a, yeah. it's a nice feeling. So, okay. Um, um, so I know you really enjoy cooking. So what's your favorite thing to cook? If you were having folks over and you really wanted to impress them, what would you cook? Oh, wow. Well, see, the thing is, is I would pro- probably grill steaks, and but the thing that I enjoy most, um, there are two. One is... Um, Brussels sprouts with, you know, little bits of bacon, and um, it's something I probably would have never eaten as a kid, but as an adult, I um, enjoy cooking them. And the thing about it is it's not just the, um, you know, putting them in the oven, but it's the process of standing there. It's kind of meditative to actually cut them open, you know, to chop Mm -hmm. it all up and to get it all ready, and um, I find that very satisfying, and then I enjoy the... Um, I enjoy Brussels sprouts, and they're good for you. You know, they have a lot of um, disease-fighting agents. So, so Brussels sprouts would be on my list, and hot applesauce would be on my list because it takes me back to my childhood. And um, I always we either made applesauce or apple pie, and so those spices of nutmeg and cinnamon and um, apples in the fall, all of those are my favorite um, times of the year and favorite things. So. It would probably be one of those two with some other things around them that I would enjoy. So is is hot applesauce just is that like freshly made applesauce, or is hot applesauce yeah. a specific recipe that would be different than applesauce you would get at the store? No, well it's it's well it's different in that you are you know cutting up the apples and you know putting the sugar and all of it yourself, so mm-hmm. and seasoning it so that it is. It is actually making it, but I like eating it nice and hot. The other thing is, is that um, as a kid, my mom would put red hots in it. So it has that cinnamony and that red flavor, and it is just, you know, so sometimes I put the red hots in it, sometimes I don't, but either way, it always brings me back to childhood and the way it smells up the house, and, um, and it's still my favorite my favorite, one of my favorite things to eat. And I can go the cheap way and buy the stuff at the store, but it's much more. Um, it's the process of making it as well as the, um, the flavors and the way they dance on my tongue that I enjoy. Mm, okay. I'm very interested <laughs> in this hot applesauce. Okay, so um, where is the best place? So, you know, imagine that our, our listeners are coming to, to visit the Iowa City area. Where should they go on a hike? Mm. Oh, well, if, in, in the immediate Iowa City area, there's a place called McBride Park um, or Recreation Center, and there are nice trails out in that area. When I moved, first moved to Iowa City, I um, lived in North Liberty, um, which is closer to those trails. So there, there are just a lot of natural trails out in that area, um, but the city's also done a really good job of making um, pathways through the city so you, all the trails connect and you can ride, you know, all the way into campus if you wanted to or walk all the way in. Um, so I think that would probably be, McBride would probably be the place I would say would be the best in this area. There's also another place called Squire Point that I think is good and they're all natural and they look over a lake. So that would be 
one, but the fun one is a little further from here. It's um, the Makokota Caves. Um, mm-hmm. And there you can hike, but there's also these caves that you can go into. So um, that has, that's a unique park and a really enjoyable hike, too. I took um, my kids and a friend of his um, when he was younger, and they thoroughly enjoyed it because it's like you can explore, and then it's beautiful, and then you're on these trails, and it has lots of cool things there. So those are probably the things that come to my mind that I've enjoyed when I've hiked in Iowa. Okay, great. Well, that's uh, that's exciting, exciting stuff. So if anybody's going to Iowa, Iowa City, there's your there's your recommendations. Um, <laughs> okay, so the the next segment is a twist on a classic icebreaker. So it's called Higher Ed: Two Truths and a Lie. Um, so what I'm going to do is provide two true stories from higher ed current events and one lie. And Sherry, you'll have to parse out the lie. So are you ready for oh your three gosh. options? I guess I'm ready. This is a lot of pressure. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I, I don't know that uh, just to sort of, you know, be frank, I don't know that the outcome of this has a lot of consequences. So don't want you to, <laughs> okay. don't want you to, to worry too much. It's hard to say what happens out there in the world, but I don't think there will be too many consequences to whether you get it right or wrong. <laughs> All right, that's good. <laughs> um, all right, so the theme this week is technological mishaps. Ah. All right. Okay. <laughs> all all right. right. So our first option is that researchers at Japan's National Institute of Informatics have abandoned a plan to build a robot smart enough to be admitted to the University of Tokyo. The goal was derailed by processing issues and an embarrassing performance last year on a standardized test. So your first option there is college admission for a robot. The next option is a student at Rowan University was recently hospitalized from injuries sustained in the student union. The student's cell phone charger caught fire while being carried in his pocket. So that's another option. We've got a cell phone charger fire in the student union. And then the last option is that the noted recycling plant on UMass Amherst campus is offline indefinitely following an accumulation of plastic sludge. The accumulation was deemed, and I quote, a frozen river of melted plastic by the campus's environmental manager, Mike Sullivan. So your three options are Japan, robot admission issue, Roman University, cell phone charger fire, and UMass Amherst river of melted plastic. Oh wow! Hmm. Those are those are three tough ones because they all could actually. I could see the possibilities. Now, tell me one more time the the technology one. It was going a student admitted. Was that the which uh, one? The first one. The first the, one. The the a student would be admitted. Uh, the a robot ro- would be admitted. A robot, yeah, it was, it was, uh, they were trying to develop a robot that would be smart enough to be admitted to the University of Tokyo that would have the qualifications for admission. Oh, gosh, this is tough. All right. I would say the truths, the truths are, I mean, it's not far-fetched to think that the cell phone caught fire in someone's pocket considering these days and the phones. So I'm going to say that's a truth. Do I get to know with whether or not, if, as, as I'm eliminating them, <laughs> if mm. I'm right or wrong? 
You know, I haven't had people ask for that before, but I will go ahead and tell you that you are correct. That one is true. So you're you're right. I don't understand how cell phone chargers just spontaneously catch fire, but I guess guess that is not totally uncommon. No, it's not uncommon. (laughs) All right. Um, And um, the sludge versus the robot. I'm going to say the other truth is the robot and the lie is the sludge. <laughs> All right. Well, congratulations. You are correct. Oh, really? Oh, my God. <laughs> you got it right. No uh, no river of melted plastic. That that was just straight from uh, straight from my noggin. So, uh, <laughs> yes, the National Institute of Informatics has abandoned their search, uh, their, their uh, process of building the robot, and uh, a charger did catch fire. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's right. I've been found out. Well, phew. I'm glad I got through that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. As I, I hope that that will be the most uh, stress-inducing part of this for you. <laughs> 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 All right. So let's, uh, let's move on to our next segment, which is called Getting to Know Sherry. So this segment is designed to help the listeners understand you as a person and as a professional. So the sort of jumping off point here is how did you decide to pursue work in higher education? Um, all right. Well, um, I probably backed into it like most people do in student affairs because you don't know that it exists until you get into college. And mm-hmm. I, um, I was, I, as a second semester freshman, I became a resident assistant, you know, in addition to being an athlete, in addition to, um, you know, my schoolwork that I was doing, and um, it ended up being the second semester because someone quit unexpectedly, so I became an RA right away, and by the time I was a um, senior, I'd also um, become the um, resident director for that same residence hall because someone quit again. I don't know, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time on all those. Um, so I was highly involved always with housing and residence life as well as um, you know, doing the traveling and the things that I was doing with the volleyball team, so it was kind of both those two worlds. Um, I obviously wasn't planning to go on and be a professional volleyball player, and at some point I um, sat down and tried to, oh, I was in communication studies undergrad, um, so my, I felt like my choices, and, and it was a specific focus in public relations, so I felt my choices were either you know, do something related to mass media or marketing, and neither appealed to me. So I sat down and talked with one of the associate directors at the time and asked her about, um, uh, or was probably just lamenting about how I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and she looked at me and she was like, well, I thought you were going to go into student affairs like me. And (laughs) I looked at her and I said, oh, I never thought of that, and I was like, "You have a job, so oh yeah, maybe I will." <laughs> you know, so that was, and then that was the aha. It kind of started to come together, and I applied to grad school and and entered in. And what I found that kept me working with housing and residence life that really got me um, um, loving the atmosphere of higher ed. There were probably two aspects. I think in my life, I always thought I would. I mean, I think I planned my whole life to get to college. You know, I knew young, very young that I wanted to um, be on a college campus. Something about the idea um, of being on a campus, on a, in a space where you could, you know, eat, study, 
you know, hang out with friends. Something about that just appealed to me as a little kid when I heard about college. Um, and then once I arrived, I, that process of watching my students in my residence hall wrestle with things and figure out what they wanted to do, that process of development um, really, you know, appealed to me. I found it, um, I, I think I found it um, interesting intellectually and I felt like I um, wanted to partner with people on that journey. So um, that really, those two pieces made me really interested in working in higher education and student affairs. And I think how I ended up working and doing research in higher ed student affairs, again, was not something I, I wanted to be a practitioner. I enjoyed being a practitioner. I, I often say I was coerced to go back to grad school and to get a doctorate. Um, and, um, but I was always interested in that same theme, studying identity and thinking about how people develop who they are and how they find their way in life. And um, my research kind of has fallen in that realm or did at the time and and that was kind of how I became interested in working working in the field and also transferring the work from a, being a practitioner to a faculty member and doing that same kind of draw keeps me interested in working with graduate students and students in general on college campuses because I like the process of education, I like the process of people coming to know who they are and thinking about um, themselves and where their what their positionality is. Hmm. Okay, uh, so for our next question, uh, we ask this uh, uh, on every podcast. So, what is the best book about leadership? Hmm. Well, so I well, I'm currently reading a book that I'm finding has some threads for. Um, for um, thinking about leadership, at least for me, and it's called um, The War of Art by Pressfield and Coyne. It's something I'm finding interesting that talks about. It's thematically the same thing that I would say my other two favorites are, at least my the favorite authors are, which would be Bell Hooks, Teaching to Transgress, and then Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So I think the theme across those three books for me is the um, the search and the process of being engaged as a learner and um, figuring out what your purpose in life is. And to me, when you're thinking about leadership, to me it's not just how you affect other people, but how you live your purpose and how that in turn then affects other people. Um, so I think any of the leadership books in my mind that, that help the leader develop and help the leader think about what their purpose is and how their purpose fits into the world or in the larger picture of the work they're trying to do is, to me, what I think is, if there is a best, the best books on leadership. Okay. Great. I love that. Leadership is about living your purpose. I think that that's mm -hmm. so convicting. Um, okay, so you uh, hold a license in counseling. How has that background and lens informed your work in academics? Um, I, I, it really has informed my work because um, in two ways. I think as a, um, 
as a counselor, one of your important skills that you develop is facilitating effectively a, a session or a group um, session of some kind. So I feel like what I took away from my counseling training and was being a facilitator of, um, of, of dialogue and doing that well. I also, um, um, another aspect of being a counselor is inviting emotion into how you work with people or um, engaging people's emotion when they're um, conflicted or trying to distance themselves from them from that. And I think emotion, if we deny ourselves that, then we don't fully know something that we're trying to understand. If we try to block off our emotion, I think we have to know including our emotion as well as our intellect and as well as how we work, work and practice in the world. Um, so um, my framework for um, that idea, I think, began in my counseling training where we often focused on good facilitation and helping people to walk through their emotions in a way that helped them to make sense of their their world and whatever challenge they were facing at the time. So I think that's how I still use it in my work. I enjoy being a teacher who applies counseling-related skills more so than I did being a one-on-one -on -one counselor. Um, but those definitely I value those skills that I took away. Okay. Uh, so I think that this is a a nice segue, uh, I, and I'm sure that your work is your work as a, a counselor and facilitating conversations was really important in this. So you've written extensively about reactions and dialogue about social issues. So, what are some typical responses uh, of which student affairs practitioners should be mindful? Um, well, uh, um, the work that I've done really focuses on. Um, how people engage in difficult dialogues. And um, I would say the, um, there are lots of typical responses that people have that we discovered through looking at the, I say we because I work, I do a lot of team data analysis. Um, and we discovered defensive reactions that people have to difficult dialogues. Um, and I would say that is, what I feel like generally disrupts um, progress on, on, on trying to move forward when we're talking about social issues or we're trying to do some type of structural change on campus, that oftentimes people either feel personally defensive or def they want to defend um, their way of being in the world and they want that status maintained. And because of that, it hinders. Um, I think how we move forward and how we might make change and be more inclusive environments. So um, I would say those are some of the typical responses and I think that student affairs professionals, um, higher administrators need to be aware of holding on very tightly to um, traditions or ways of being that um, prioritize or privilege certain groups over other groups. and that it's important that we're constantly in the process of revisiting how our values and what we're upholding and how all of that manifests itself in our day-to-day -day work because I think if we're not doing that as student affairs professionals, sometimes we are lulled into um, 
passivity about it, and that means things are always going to be the same, and we have some things that need to actually change in the structure of how we do the work so that it is more inclusive and we have more access. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a really good. Uh, I think that that's a really good point about traditions broadly. I uh, presented recently at an outdoor education conference about creating uh, diverse and inclusive and equitable uh, environments in in the outdoors, uh, which is certainly mm-hmm. an area which is certainly an area that is uh, that is not uh, high achieving in those areas and really challenge folks to, I believe I said, interrogate every part of your program for, uh, for assumptions and for built-in, and for built-in bias. Uh, and, you know, what, what are you doing that's, that's excluding folks there? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's incredibly important to, I, I think you have to really start at the bottom, uh, start and, and look at all that, all that stuff. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, and that's the thing. It's, I don't think we spend the time to look at what we've always been doing. We somehow at some point decide that it's all good and we don't necessarily interrogate it and look at how the world is changing or how things have changed or how we've changed and maybe how we need to do things differently or how the, you know, the population of who's coming to college or who's coming to um, some of the activities that you're referring to, we don't we don't we don't take the time to rethink that and revisit it. And I just I think that's really an important thing that we have to do if we're you know, and we have to avoid trying to fall into that trap of a typical response. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. So uh, transition to our final segment, which is certainly our most extensive, but our final one nonetheless, which is six big leadership questions. So. Sure. My first question is, you've worked extensively on the privileged identity, identity exploration model, including editing a book that re-articulated the theory. Uh, for those of us who are coming, uh, who are coming from a, a sort of a pure student leadership program's background, could you provide an overview of the origin and the function of that model? Sure. Um, well, um, originally the research kind of was born out of um, my experience and other people's experience of facilitating coursework or other content that um, centered around social oppression that was difficult for people to absorb and to really think about. You know, we were just talking about how do you look at structures and systems that might be excluding people and how do you revisit those and shift that and, and talk that through in a way that we get to a productive type of change. And um, this model originated out of, you know, having those conversations in classrooms and in other spaces and feeling like there was a lot of resistance. Um, and what we did was we, you know, took a look at um, papers, student papers that were written as they engaged in these discussions over the course of a year, and it was five years of collecting data. And um, we did a team consensual qualitative analysis, and we, and through that, these particular themes emerged. And one of the things that, well, there were two things that emerged as sort of foundational that generally people are reacting defensively, but recognizing that those defenses are normal reactions rather than um, 
you know, something that to be shamed or, or for people to be, feel like they need to be ostracized. Um, instead, that we all have to recognize that anytime we're introduced to new information, we feel um, that we have to protect ourselves or protect what we've always known. And so as a part of trying to make sense of that, we start to defend ourselves rather than um, just flat-out resistance. It's not that we're not trying to understand. We are just trying to understand, and those defenses act as a rope to help us just go down a little slower and not just quite fall off the cliff. So um, the defensive reactions are, are these normal types of reactions that are born out of because you're either fearful um, about the change or you're entitled. So you are fearing that something is going to change or you're entitled that um, it might be a problem but it's not your problem so you don't have to um, engage in the discussion or try to look at this issue in a way. So at the root of the model is this I'm generally um, in a primal way reacting to either my fear or my entitlement. Um, and there are eight defenses that have um, emerged from this particular model. There are probably other defenses and there's also overlap between the defenses. I think what's the ones that are most interesting, even though they're, you know, the, all of them have a place, you know, denial, um, um, deflection, rationalization, intellectualization are the kinds of things that are mentioned that I think some people are familiar, um, you know, connect to some of the earlier psychological work of Freud and others that talk about just how people respond when they feel threatened or they're trying to integrate new information. Um, but the ones that we found that I think are interesting in a different way are false envy, principium, and benevolence. And those three um, we have found are, are push us, especially those of us who are in the field and have done some work around race or done some work around our um, biases around sexual orientation or gender or anything along those lines, we find ourselves um, uh, defending ourselves in a different way than maybe the classic denial. Um, so one of those would be um, false, like false envy. So sometimes we are, our reactions are that we, we are overly complimentary of something that is um, something that um, we are dissonant about. So one of the classic ones that came out of the research is um, you, you're, you're in a conversation, you're having a dialogue about race or racism, and you immediately shift and turn, you know, to talk about how much you admire the struggle of folks of color and how, how strong they must be and how, you know, how much you admire their strength. So while you might admire, while that might all be genuine, the shift in the conversation shifts in such a way that you're focusing a bit more on the, um, the admiration rather than the complexity of the issues and maybe how mm -hmm. you feel about race related to that. So that would be kind of an example. Um, principium is generally a laid down kind of defensive reaction where you you put forth your personal value or your principle. Oftentimes, um, we found in the research that it's related to 
Christian privilege, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in a, we may be in a discussion around, oh, oh I should mention that's another, inter, another part of this. Um, our research revealed that these defenses arose not just um, related to race privilege, but also around sexual orientation, around gender, as well as around disability. So these mm-hmm. defensive reactions were consistent regardless of the ism that was being explored. Um, but, but the one that most commonly came up um, around um, Principium was, um, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe that um, because of what I've been taught that um, same-sex relationships are wrong. And once you lay down that gauntlet and you've talked about religion, then you have to protect your, you, you know, everyone is w- helping you probably protect your um, religious belief. And then that defense pops up that prevents the exploration in a more complex way of the issues of what are the consequences of that, particularly as a professional in the field. How do you work with people who are on your college campus who are in same-sex relationships? How do you work with that? Um, so um, it prevents a more complex conversation if you lay down that law. Um, and then the final one I'll mention is um, benevolence. Um, that one is the... Um, is a defensive reaction that's usually focused on an act of charity um, Mm -hmm. or something that situates the self um, with some distance but with some some appreciation of the dissonance-provoking stimuli or stimulus. So um, let's say, you, you know, people, I think, don't want to be called racist or believe that they have racist tendencies. So um, they give to a charity and do work in neighborhoods that they feel um, that they can be of some service to. And while that's all, you know, I'm not saying don't, don't give, don't volunteer in neighborhoods, don't do any of that, but because you do those things, if you use the defensive reaction of benevolence, it's, well, you know, I can't be a racist or I don't really need to explore this because I've resolved it by reaching into my pocket and giving a donation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a complex one because you, I definitely wouldn't want to discourage people from um, giving back or from, you know, supporting organizations. But at the same time, when you lay that down in a dialogue, it's, it says, well, I've already done all of my work and there's no more work here to do around my race or my racism, um, and I can protect myself because I can point to that I've been doing this um, good work in the community. Um, so that, that, I don't know if that's too long of an explanation, but that's kind of the overview of how the privilege model, um, the privilege identity model, which we call the PINE model, emerged, and then a few of the defensive reactions that, um, that are key in the model. Mm. No, I mean, it was, it was certainly not too long. I, I mean, it was a huge question, you know, like I don't, <laughs> explain a, you know, ex- explain a model here on the, here on the podcast quickly as we pivot to, to some more stuff is a pretty big undertaking. So no, I thought that that was, I thought that, that was great. Um, so to, to sort of piggyback off that a little bit, I understand that, that, um, that you're a part of a team that's working to develop an instrument for measuring the pie model. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that uh, uh, what can you, you know, what are you at the point that you can share about that tool and how do you imagine mm-hmm. it being implemented in higher education? 
Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, we are at the point um, we have finished uh, both the reliability and the validity aspects of the study, and um, we are writing up the study to submit it for publication. Um, and we do have an instrument. Um, we focused on um, race um, rather than um, um, trying to do an instrument that included race, sexual orientation, and disability. So we've mm -hmm. started with um, defensive reactions related to race. And so the um, measure um, looks at defensive reactions or um, identifies those um, through how we've, um, through the use of statements and other things that are a part of the instrument. Now, um, I've, you know, I've had some you know, our team has had great discussion. Um, we have a great team of people. Um, John Mueller is a part of it. I mean, we just have a, um, a great group of um, uh, colleagues as well as um, students that have worked on it. And, you know, we've had lots of difficult conversations around, you know, what does it mean to translate something like this concept into an instrument that measures and um, and would identify people's defenses. How is that going to be used, you know, with people? Um, and one of the things that what we hope is that um, the instrument would be used one to bring about personal awareness or awareness that could be used in some type of educational workshop where if people are aware of their defenses. In my experience, once people can see their defenses, um, then they can notice them, they've identified them as a defense, mm. and they can do some of the work that, okay, I understand what a defense is, I have displayed that defense, now let me think about what that's about for me. What is the barrier, you know, that's inside me or inside my mind that's preventing me from exploring this concept? So it, mm. it is, it's a... I don't know if it would necessarily be non-threatening, but it's a, it is a way to be able to get people to do some personal reflection by having this evidence in front of them that identifies their um, defensive reaction. So that's one way mm. we hope it will be used in workshops and things like that. And then the other way, um, which is more of the, you know, just hardline research way, is we hope to study reactions as a phenomenon, you know, and, and think about, you know, how does someone's reactions, um, defensive reactions align with their racial identity, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and what phase they're in in their particular racial identity or racial. So I think that there are ways that we can look at, the, at how the defenses, inter, defenses interplay with other constructs. Um, because we have the instrument now. Okay, great. Um, so uh, you recently wrote in the New Directions in leadership series about the necessity to stay in controversy. Um, I, I think that the, uh, as, as someone who has read through that uh, through that piece, I, I think it's a convicting and, and challenging call. So can you expound upon that argument? Yeah. Um, well, it's, um, it, it kind of aligns with my overall, um, I should, my overall approach to, you know, if we're going to make some kind of progress, we have to actually engage in, in dialogue and 
figure out how to work through some really complex issues of breaking down a system. And this um, piece particularly highlights um, the um, ACES method, which is the action, I mean the um, authentic action-oriented framing for environmental shifts method, which is an approach that I have always used in my classrooms and in how I engage people in difficult conversations, and it focuses on creating the environmental conditions that help people to stay in controversy longer. And so the real focus of this piece is to highlight the importance of what we've talked about earlier of how leaders have to be able to stay in the controversy and lead people through the controversy um, and focus on the quality of the process, not the outcome. So um, thinking about how do I intentionally arrange a dialogue around complex issues where I include um, explorations of my head, my heart, my hands, you know, engage people in that process so that they can explore um, all different sides of an issue um, before they come to a conclusion about the outcome of what they're going to do about it. Um, the idea is that if people explore, if leaders have done their own exploration and they're leading others through their exploration, that you might make fewer missteps perhaps when you're trying to work and um, assist with change in a community. Um, if you've really done some examination of what your motivation is for going to um, uh, you know, a neighborhood in New Orleans, you know, around the time of Hurricane Katrina, if you really, you know, have done your personal exploration for what connects you to this and what, what your intention is, um, maybe it would help you to be a better listener about what the community actually wants and needs. Maybe it would help you to sit with the discomfort when people challenge you about why you're there or what your role is and um, how well your being here aligns with um, other aspects of your life. You know, I think that oftentimes um, leaders um, stop off and do certain things, but then those um, things don't necessarily trickle through in their own lives, so there's some, out, some misalignment. Um, so this piece really just encourages leaders to do some reflecting for themselves to get in alignment with what their intention is, and then to think about how to carry that out in a process with other people so that everybody reaches um, a way of being together that aligns with them doing good work in communities that's inclusive, just, and responsible. Okay. Um, so to continue on the uh, the leadership track, um, how do you think that practitioners can make leadership an inclusive concept on college campuses? Uh, um, well, I I think the idea of um, focusing on how we are how we are going about our leadership development or how we're 
engaging people, that's the part that I think um, we have to do with some intention. Um, so I think that um, when you say you want to, um, in a student affairs office, for example, that you want to have a, a um, serve the broader campus and you want to make sure that you know, in a leadership development program that you have a diverse representation of students, um, you want to make sure that not only are you recruiting those students, but what work have you done as staff and people who work together to really um, manage the controversy, to really think about how you engage with each other around things that are different and around things that you disagree about, and in fact, what do you think about um, the lack of representation that has historically been a part of that program, if that is the case, or what conflicts that have you had that might have um, uh, made the environment that you're working in on your campus um, not welcoming or not a place that um, people who are different from who's already there want to stay. Um, so I think it's really important to um, revisit that, not just in the effort to recruit people and, and in what you say to people, but in how you do your work together before you even bring those folks in. Okay. Uh, so the uh, the next question is certainly a, a challenging one and, and one that is very topical and one that we both thought uh, was was really necessary to consider. Um, how do the results of the 2016 presidential election impact the leadership development process on college campuses? Oh, yeah, and that's such a big question, and I'm I I um. I am still in process myself in terms of thinking about what this all means. I think I feel like as a nation we're we're trying to figure that out. Um, and I think that um, it's made all of us question um, what we have been talking about is important for leaders and um, the conversations that we're having on our campus, um, I think, are are difficult to have because we have both um, students who feel um, very unsafe and uh, afraid of um, for their for their own lives and the lives of their families, um, and they you know we're we're afraid that the protections that are in place are going to be um, eliminated, and that is scary. Um, at the same time, there are students that I've um, heard on campus that are feeling like um, they have been deemed automatic racist because um, they voted either for Donald Trump or um, didn't have an active um, voice against um, the new president-elect. So um, I think there's a lot of controversy on the campus, and um, none of us know exactly what to do. Um, and I think as leaders, uh, leaders on campus, the leaders have to figure out what, they, um, what they're going to do about it. And for me, I found that the 
place that I'm starting is having very straightforward and authentic conversations with the people that are closest to me in terms of work. I think what I want is for my relationships that I'm having with the people that I'm doing the work with to be in alignment and that we have talked about some really tough things. And then we can go about doing this work of talking across controversy with other people. And in my view, we've got to figure out some way to talk about, talk across the divide. And and I don't, I mean, I, I know that my work speaks to some of that about how we create the conditions in order for us to have the dialogue so that we're not um, overly biased in one direction or the other. Um, but there are a lot of tough questions around that because I know people feel like, in fact, we should be leaning in one direction over another and every voice shouldn't have equal weight. And I just think that's, um, I think we have to have so many conversations before the conversations in order for us to get to a place where we can start to work across the divide. Okay. Well, thanks for tackling uh, for tackling that uh, you know fairly untackable issue that we're all trying to <laughs> trying to wade through. Um, so yeah, to, <laughs> so to say, I don't know if I've got wise advice, but it's. it's um, <laughs> Because it's, uh, it's, I think we're all still trying to, the world is still spinning for me, and I'm still trying to figure out where, you know, where I'm going to touch ground, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think that that's true, and I think so much of, of what you've already shared is, is applicable for, for that particular conversation as well. Uh, so, to close and to oversimplify, if you were going to give one piece of advice to a student affairs practitioners about advocacy on campus, what would you offer? Um, I would offer um, to start telling the truth, um, you know, to your, um, to your friends, family. Um, I think um, having as many places that you can expand um, authenticity and and where you can be who you are and say what's on your mind, I, I'm of the belief that if we all speak our truth, we don't necessarily have to agree, but at least we know where everyone stands. And that, to me, I feel like when you're trying to advocate and you're trying to um, work in in controversy, that the you don't you don't have control over what um, what happens, but the only control that you do have is to definitely speak your truth, be very honest about it, and listen very carefully to other people's truths. Um, so that would be that would probably be my advice. One of the quotes that I um, like a lot is um, by Harriet Rubin, which is, "Freedom is actually bigger than power. Power is about what you can control. Freedom is about what you can unleash." And mm-hmm. I think if we focus on what, what being honest and being authentic, we are um, unleashing um, freedom and unleashing opportunities for, for really good dialogue um, that we can have that might lead us to some important structural change. Mm. Okay. Great. Um, okay, so 
Thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. And thanks so much to Dr. Sherry Watt. Final question, Sherry, what are you hopeful about in 2017? Hmm. Well, let's see. I'm an optimist in general by nature, even though there are days lately I haven't been very optimistic, but I am optimistic because um, as the as my kid says, and I know um, uh, most or, or most young people are saying now that um, at least we're now woke. And mm-hmm. for me, um, I like that. I feel like because we are awake, and as long as we stay awake, um, that we can get to a more just and transformed, transformed nation. So um, even though we might not like how it has come about. At least we're woke. So mm. there's a yeah, there's a great um, quote from a William Stafford piece that um, the last stanza to the poem. It says, "For it is important that awake people be awake, or breaking the line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep." Mm. And so. For me, I just love the idea that, you know, now that we're woke, let's stay awake and, and see what we can do to, uh, to get to a more just and transformed space. Okay, well, thanks, for, thanks so much for sharing that, and thank you so much for your time. Your, your work is a, a real guiding light for a lot of us in the field, so thank you for, for that. Um, Sherry's work can be found digitally on at the On Being blog and on the Chronicle, and you can also get Dr. Watt's new book, Designing Transformative Multicultural Initiatives, Theoretical Foundations, Practical Applications, and Facilitator Considerations at a small online outlet that folks may have heard of called Amazon.com. Uh, so <laughs> you can also get more information about the knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash lead on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter, which is my at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Sherry. Thank you very much, Miles.